The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 11, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals. Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Okay, we are in Joshua chapter 4. We're going to finish this up today. It's verses 15 through 24. Now, before I read you the sermon verses, I will say a couple of things. We have Gary going to Israel on 6 September. He's going to be there for about a month. And if anybody wants something to pray for, you can pray for him, for his safety, for having a good time, and maybe, uh, you know, just finding a, a, a purpose in life instead of wandering around working on VW bugs. Anyway, keep Gary in your prayers, please. Uh, a second thing before we start, uh, some of you may have seen it. John Haller mentioned last week's sermon, okay? Um, it was He's way over gracious in his comments. He's a really nice guy. Some of you have met him. He was down here a year or so ago. I'm hoping now that he's retired, he will move to Florida, and then he'll be able to play golf every day instead of half the year up there. Anyway, um, anybody wants to send him an email and tell him to come down here, we'll save a uh, spot right over there for him, okay, and his beautiful wife. Anyway, um, uh, he mentioned the sermon, and he mentioned he loved the typology in there, and so he recommended it to people. And it sounded like he did not uh, see the Joshua 3 sermons. And if that's the case, and people that watch this sermon because of his recommendation want to understand what's going on, I would actually go back to Joshua 1. 1 and 2 give important information, but Joshua 3 and Joshua 4 are a united whole. They really, along with what's coming all the way through Joshua 8, they're all going to have a very particular pattern that once you see that, you'll understand what's going on. But uh, Joshua 3 and 4 are marvelous, but I want to also just thank John for his kind words because, like I said, he's way over gracious in his comments. But here we go with Joshua 4, starting in verse 15. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Command the priests who bear the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. And it came to pass when the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet touched the dry land, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. Then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, 
when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let the children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over, that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. We have seen how the Jordan pictures the incarnation of Jesus. It reflects his life coming from heaven, spending much time in Galilee, zigzagging throughout all of Israel, dying, resurrecting, and ascending again. The passage today marvelously uses the Jordan. It's cutting off the actions of the priests with the ark, the leadership of Joshua, the stones from the river, and so much more to detail exactly what God is doing in Christ for the people of the world. We will go through the final verses of chapter 4, and then we will analyze the entire chapter. And all of this has a marvelous purpose. When God did what he did to Egypt, using the ten plagues served a special purpose. And then, in the final great act against them, he brought Israel through the Red Sea, luring Egypt in behind them. In his destruction of Egypt, we read this, which is our text verse for today. Then Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant, Moses. As for Moses, his life was used as a stepping stone to bring Israel to another great event. The two crossings through the Red Sea and through the Jordan beautifully reflect what the number two signifies in Scripture. Bollinger says that two affirms that there is a difference. There is another. Moses stands for the law. The people's passing through the Red Sea reflects the people's being brought into the law. Joshua stands for the grace of Christ. The people's passing through the Jordan reflects this occurring in the people. The law is of works. Grace is a gift. The two contrast, but they also confirm the work of God in Christ. Christ did the work of the law, and Christ bestows the gift of grace. If you follow along carefully with the verses today, you will be able to weed out some real heresies that have arisen in the church. People go running down crazy avenues of theology in the New Testament, simply because they are unwilling to do the hard work and look at what God has already told us in the Old Testament. If we carefully follow what is said here, so, so, so much of that can be alleviated. Thank you for sharing these Old Testament passages with me. May you be blessed as we look into them today. Great things are to be found in his superior word. And so, let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got two thoughts for you today. The first is, what are these stones? It's verses 15 through 24. Verse 15, then the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, it is letter for letter the same as the final clause of verse 4-1, saying, Vayomer Yehovah el Yehoshua lemor, and said Yehovah unto Yehoshua to say. As noted then, the difference between said and spoke is small, but it carries with it the general sense of working together rather than simply speaking forth a command. Joshua is told to, verse 16, command the priests who bear the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. In the same manner that has already been seen several times in the early Joshua sermons, these words now 
have already been accomplished in verse 411. But the story is now going back to fill in the command that brought about the action there. Here's what it says. Then it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over that the ark of the Lord and the priests crossed over in the presence of the people. This then sets off the coming verses as their own independent section. This is the opening verse of that section. The Lord commands, Joshua's obedience in conveying the command is recorded, and then the action is taken by those to whom the command is directed. Here, instead of the Ark of the Lord or the Ark of the Covenant, it is called Aron Ha'edut, or Ark the Testimony. This is the only time in the book of Joshua that it is called this. The word ed signifies a testimony or a witness coming from ud, meaning to repeat or to go around again. It is, as a warning, something to be heeded. The symbolism here seems quite obvious. The warning has been heeded by the people. Next, and in immediate obedience to the word of the Lord, it says, verse 17, Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. With the people fully passed over, the time for the priests to come out of where the water was stopped up has come. In typology, Joshua anticipates Christ, the leader of his people. The priests are typical of Christ in his mediatorial role. The ark bearing the priests is typical of Christ, the fulfillment of the law, and the one who then died in fulfillment of it. The Jordan, the descender, pictures Christ who descended from heaven to earth, and the waters picture the life within him. With these things in mind, verse 18, And it came to pass when the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, Vehi ba'alot ha'kohanim nose aron berit Yehovah, and it came to pass in the ascending, the priests bearing Ark Covenant Yehovah. The name, the Ark, now returns from the word edut, or testimony, to berit, or covenant. It is the covenant of Yehovah. The main focus is on the priests who bear the Ark. They are a single entity for all intents and purposes. As a whole, the focus is on the covenant, meaning the Mosaic Covenant. Together they, verse 18 continues, had come from the midst of the Jordan. Mitok hayarden, from midst the Jordan. The waters had stopped when the feet of the priests had been submerged in the water. The priests stood in that spot until all the people had passed through. Now the priests have fully crossed and ascended, coming out of the riverbed where the waters had ceased. Verse 18 continues. And the sole of the priests' feet touched the dry land. It is a heavily pregnant construction. Niteku kaput ragle hakoanim el heharava. Tore up souls' feet, the priests, unto the dry ground. The word for tore up is nathak. It comes from a primitive root signifying to tear off. Most of its uses in the Old Testament are very forceful, like breaking something off, tearing off fetters, snapping ropes, and things like that. As a side note, and interestingly enough, even though this word in modern Hebrew is much more mellow and conveys the idea of disconnection, the three uses of it in the Hebrew New Testament perfectly match the normal uses of the ancient Hebrew. They are found in Luke 8, Acts 16, and Acts 27. In this, we can see that in the action of the priests, there is as a severing of what was. It was without a doubt that this is recorded history. The soles of the feet of the priests were in the spot where they had placed their feet in the water. The ground remained moistened under their soles, but dried around them. 
they had to forcefully pluck up their feet from the ground. In this, it is next scene, verse 18 continues, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place. Vayashuvu mehayarden limkomam, and returned waters, the Jordan, to their place. The text of this verse implies that the waters were there at that moment. As before, the timing of the event wasn't just step out of the waters and then the waters came later. Instead, one, the waters from very, very far away, up in Adam, released. Two, the people continued to cross through until the last one crossed. Three, the command from the Lord to Joshua was given. Four, the command from Joshua to the priests was given. Five, the priests tore their feet from the riverbed and they came out of the Jordan and six, the waters were there at that moment. The plan of the Lord had started to be worked out with the waters releasing in Adam. It was fully realized the moment the priests stepped out of the bed and onto dry ground. The timing of the event was perfectly executed by the foreseen knowledge of the Lord as is evidenced with the words, verse 18 continues, and overflowed all its banks as before. And went from yesterday, day before yesterday, upon all his banks. The meaning is that just as it had previously flowed, so it returned to just as it was then. In these words, we should note the term, all his banks. Verse 19, when the people came up from the Jordan, and the people ascended from the Jordan. The Jordan is the descender. The words thus give the interesting sense of the people ascended from the descender. This occurred, verse 19 continues, on the 10th day of the first month. Ba'asor lachodesh harishon, in 10th to the month the first. This is the 10th day of the year 2555 Anno Mundi, meaning from the creation of the world. It is a most incredible date for two reasons. The first is that it is exactly 40 years to the day from the time the Passover lamb was selected as noted in Exodus 12, verses 3 through 6. Secondly, the day is especially notable based on a discovery that goes back to a study I did over 15 years ago when looking for something completely different. This date is exactly 14,000 days to the day from the day the people departed Mount Sinai, as is recorded in Numbers 10. Here's what it says there. Now it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month in the second year that the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle of the testimony. And the children of Israel set out from the wilderness of Sinai on their journeys. Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So they started out for the first time, according to the command of the Lord, by the hand of Moses. The calculation is simple once you know it and uses the standard biblical day of a 360-day year. The starting date, you count 30, and that is the first month. So the first month is over, so you count the 30 days because the biblical month is a 30-day month, 30. And then you have the 20th day of the second month, so it's 30 plus 20. And then add is of the second year. So you only count the first year, 360 days plus the 30 of the first month and 20 of the second month. And you come out to day 410. The finishing day is day 10 of the first month of the 41st year. So it's very simple to calculate 360 times 40 years and then add on day 10. 
and you come out to 14,410. And you subtract the starting date, which is 410, and you come out to, voila, 14,000 days to the day. The perfection of the dating, unknown until around the year 2005, is telling us something. The number 14 is defined by Bollinger as being a multiple of seven, partakes of its significance, and being double that number implies a double measure of spiritual perfection. The number two, with which it is combined, two times seven, may, however, bring its own significance into its meaning, as in Matthew 1, where the genealogy of Jesus Christ is divided up and given in sets of 14, two times seven generations, two being the number associated with the incarnation. With this astonishingly precise figuring, a dating used even by rabbis in Israel today, now that it has been found, we have a picture of something that God has been carefully planning all along. With that scene, it next says, verse 19 continues, and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And they camped in the Gilgal, in extremity, east Jericho. Gilgal comes from the word Gilgal, meaning a wheel. It thus means a circle, a wheel, or figuratively, here's the definition, liberty, as in a rolling away. The last meaning is derived from Joshua chapter 5, which will be in starting next week, which says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. And I should qualify with what I just said with the words, the Lord willing, because maybe we'll be out of here before next week. It is a marvelous picture that is being conveyed for us to consider right here. Verse 20, and those 12 stones, which they took out of the Jordan, and to ten the stones, the these, which they took from the Jordan. These are the 12 stones the Lord instructed Joshua to have taken from where the priests stood. They are not the same ones set up at the spot where the priests stood. Of these, verse 20 continues, Joshua set up in Gilgal. Hakim Yehoshua ba Gilgal raised up Joshua in the Gilgal. Joshua is said to have accomplished both the setting up of the stones in the midst of the Jordan as well as these now. After this, verse 21, then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, Vayomer el bene Yisrael lemor, and said unto sons Israel to say, It is Joshua who now speaks, after the setting up of the stones, as he addresses the sons of Israel, meaning the twelve tribes descended from Israel. Verse 21 continues, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, there is a stress in the words that are noted right here. Asher yishalun, that N on the end of that word is a stress. Asher yishalun benechem machar et avotam lemor. When certainly ask your sons tomorrow, their fathers, to say, it is with all certainty that the stones which are to be erected in the Gilgal will cause the children to ask of their fathers. Verse 21 continues, what are these stones? Ma Ha'avanim ha'ele. What the stones? The these. As noted in the previous sermon, stone signifies establishment, as in setting up a pillar to establish something. It signifies permanence in that which is established is set to stand firm. It signifies resiliency and strength 
as in that which is fixed and unyielding. For the fathers, when asked by their children of these stones, verse 22, then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. The stones were to be a perpetual reminder of the event that occurred. The entire nation, as one, passed through the Jordan by Yabasha, or in the dry ground. It is the exact same expression used to designate the event of passing through the Red Sea on dry ground. And the reason for this being possible is, verse 23, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you. Asher hobish Yehovah Elohechem et Meharyarden mepenechem, which dried up Yehovah your God, waters the Jordan from your presence. Joshua notes that the waters of the descender were dried up right before their faces. Verse 23 continues, until you had crossed over. The words are all in the plural as Joshua speaks. The nation as a whole crossed through, but the nation is comprised of all of the people, and all of the people had crossed through in the same manner. Verse 23 continues, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. The words are carefully stated as Joshua includes himself in the narrative, saying, Mipanenu, from our presence, and Avrenu, our crossing through. Just as had been the case with Israel and the crossing of Yam Suf, or see the ending, so is the case with the people now. Moses led the people in the former, and Joshua now leads them in the latter. This is so, verse 24, that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty. The words bear an emphasis. To end purpose may know all peoples, the earth, hand Yehovah for mighty it. This is the purpose of what took place. The word ha'aretz can be translated as the land, and for Israel and Canaan, that's probably a better intent. However, because this is given as typology of Christ, I rendered it in my translation, the earth, as in Genesis 1.1, because what is done by the Lord in Christ demonstrates the mighty hand of the Lord to all peoples of the earth. This is the ultimate intent of what is being pictured, and there is a personal purpose for Israel as well. Verse 24 finishes with, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Lema'an yeratem et Yehovah Elohechem kal ha'yamim. To end purpose, you have feared Yehovah your God all the days. The idea of fear here is that of reverenced fear, not of being afraid. For Israel today and for much of the church as well, for example, there is no reverenced fear of the Lord. But this is the end purpose of setting forth these 12 stones in Gilgal. It is so that they will be a witness to what the Lord has done so that the people will remember his works and reverence him for all their days, meaning forever. What are these stones for? Why are they there? Are they just something someone raised up for fun? What are they for? Should I care? Who can I ask about what has been done? Surely these rocks were raised up with purpose and intent. They are a witness to what the Lord has done. They were taken from the descender when the waters were spent, like when the life ceased in God's own Son. They have been raised up for all people to see, and those who understand will glory at what God has done. When the waters of the descender were cut off completely, 
when the life left the man from heaven, God's own son. Our second thought today is pictures of Christ. How does one describe what is going to happen to an entire nation that has been disobedient to the Lord for 2,000 years when they finally do what they should have done before being exiled for their rejection of Jesus? How do you do that? From Numbers 14 until now, the entire panorama of what has been seen has typologically anticipated Israel's rejection of their Messiah, their exile into the wilderness, meaning their second exile from the land after rejecting him, Jesus Christ, their chance at individual salvation, such as in those who were bitten by snakes and looked to the serpent on the pole, their judgment under the law that Christ has fulfilled, the ending of the law for them as pictured by the death of Moses outside of the land of Canaan, their acceptance of Christ, their entering into the new covenant, and their state of salvation once that occurs. How does that come about? All of this and so much more has been seen since Numbers 14. This is the last step of that process, but it is not the last event of it. For example, in Joshua 5, the people will be circumcised. That is a part of what happens when the nation comes to Christ. Each account is a part of the greater story, and each conveys truths that will actually occur in Israel's future, whether they accept that now or not, which they obviously do not. What is now being displayed is Israel's national salvation, while also giving hints of other events that occur in and through the work of Jesus Christ. Joshua 3 already conveyed much of what was then repeated early in Joshua 4. However, in order to fill in more typology of Christ, parts of the account are repeated with different and additional information. The first thing to remember is the symbolism of the Jordan. We saw this in chapter 3. In fulfillment of the typology, Jesus himself expressly tells us that he is what the Jordan pictures. That's from John 6. For I have come down. Yarati, which is the word Yarad, come down, which is where the word Jordan comes from. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus said, I have come down. Hayarden, the Jordan, means the descender. Jesus is the descender. In their crossing through the Jordan, the descender, meaning Christ, the Lord, he tells Joshua, who then tells the people to take for themselves 12 stones according to the tribes. One man from each tribe is to take a stone. As noted in Joshua 3, the word over, used by the New King James Version, is better translated as through. This is to fit the typology repeatedly used of faith in Christ in the New Testament, such as Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through, the word is dia in Greek, like diameter, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. As for the number 12, it signifies perfection of government or of governmental perfection, according to E.W. Bullinger. A governmental order is being represented by these 12 stones. Obviously, because these stones are according to each tribe of Israel, the order is a government set forth for the nation as a whole. They are taken, as it said, from midst of the Jordan, meaning Christ Jesus, the descender, the government is based upon the person and work of Christ. That is clearly seen, for example, in Matthew, Matthew 19, 28. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, 
When the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That is coming, but it is only coming when the nation comes to Christ. This is confirmed throughout both Testaments, and it is noted innumerable times. It is the finished work of Jesus under the law and his death in fulfillment of it, symbolizing the cutting off of the waters that makes this possible. This is why the death of Moses occurs outside of Canaan. That death is now explained in the Joshua account, one story overlapping and building upon the next. The stones were taken from where the priests holding the ark stood, signifying the priestly duties accomplished by Christ in his death, all carefully explained in the book of Hebrews. The word describing the cutting off of the waters we saw before, we see it again, karat, is used when a covenant is cut. In this, the death of Jesus in fulfillment of the law of Moses is seen. Moses dying outside of Israel, and then the cutting of a new covenant is seen at the same time. As we saw in verse 7, this explains the difference between Ark, Jehovah your God, Jesus the embodiment of the law, and Ark, Covenant, Jehovah, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Verse 7 also gave us the symbolism saying, in his crossing through the Jordan were cut off waters the Jordan. Jesus the man had his life cut off from him, symbolized by the cutting off of the waters, and yet the deity of the Lord stood in the Jordan. The priests with the ark, that's what is represented by the deity of the Lord. The priests with the ark, the presence of the Lord accepting his priestly work. As I noted at that time, still in verse 7, it doesn't matter that the stones are lost to history. The written record means that the memorial of these stones still exists. As the stones represent the 12 tribes of Israel, it means that the same group of people who were exiled are the same group of people who are now, 2,000 years later, regathered according to Scripture. In other words, God is showing us that he has faithfully kept this group of people who rejected Jesus just as he did in the 40 years of punishment after they rejected the words of Joshua to enter the land. That was back in Numbers 14. Joshua and Caleb went up and explored the land with the other 10 spies, and they came back and they said, it's a good land, go in, we can take it. And they all said, no, and we want to return to Egypt, etc. All of that was pictured since Numbers 14, God preserving the people of Israel. You know, somebody sent me an email yesterday, and he asked, listen, here's this, uh, this video I want you to tell me about. And it was the same thing that I talked about in a Deuteronomy sermon where the guy titled it the same as Chuck Baldwin's sermon. It said, The Divorce of Israel. And he said, this shows you quite clearly that Israel's out and they have no standing before the Lord. If you want to know why that's not correct, send me an email and I'll send you the link to the sermon I did. That is the poorest of theology. Everything they did was taken out of context, forget the verses that clearly show that they're still a people prepared by the Lord to be saved as a nation, okay? That's all being pictured right now. But people are not willing to go back into these passages and study them. And if you do, there's no doubt what is going on. That was typical back in Numbers 14 of what we see, even today with their continued disobedience. Someday this people will come to Christ and this typology will be fulfilled. It's not maybe, it is going to happen. The book is written Of those stones that were selected, in verse 5, it said each was to be taken up on the shoulder of the man carrying it. These 12 tribes under the authority of Christ are pictured in this. 
As we saw, the shoulder signifies the place of bearing a burden, as in a yoke. As such, it emblematically signifies the authority and or responsibility. It is the authority of their Messiah, seen in Isaiah 9, that the government will be upon his shoulder. The burden of the government, and thus the responsibility for it, will be his. The stone signifies, as we saw, establishment, as in setting up a pillar to institute something. Two, permanence in that which is established. It stands firm. And three, resiliency and strength, as in that which is fixed and unyielding. That is also seen in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 9, 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. In verse 8, the stones representing the people of the 12 tribes were said to have been carried into Canaan by the 12 men and were laid down, Yanach, rested at the place where they lodged. It is what was promised by Jesus in Matthew 11 and what is confirmed in Hebrews chapter 4 from Matthew 11, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He's speaking to Israel at this time. He's not speaking to the Gentiles. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then from Hebrews 4, 3, for we who have believed, speaking to the Hebrew people and Gentiles are included in this because it's now after the cross, do enter that rest. And then from Hebrews 4.10, for he who has rested, you and me, and any Jew who has come to Christ, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. In verse 9, something highly unusual occurred, however, didn't it? It says that Joshua raised up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan. Why would he do this? The answer is because national Israel is not the whole point and focus of Scripture. How many elders are around the throne in Revelation? 24. There is another government being set up. It is one that takes another group of people into account. While Israel had rejected Christ, God didn't just put things on hold. He continued on with the redemption of man. John the Baptist spoke of exactly this. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. He said this while baptizing in the Jordan, Matthew 3, 6. But more, according to John 1, verse 28, it is in this exact same location. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Bethabara means house of the crossing. It would have had this name based on what occurred right here in Joshua 4. Whether the 12 stones that Joshua raised up were still visible at the time of John the Baptist or not is completely irrelevant. The account is recorded in Scripture, and the people would know exactly what he was referring to if they simply thought it through for one second. An important point to consider is that this second set of stones is credited solely to Joshua, having set them up. No one else is mentioned. The church is solely established by Jesus Christ, and it came out of his death 
in fulfillment of the old and establishment of the new, signified by being there in the Jordan. And more, it is set up even before Israel finishes crossing through the Jordan. That ought to tell us something. The second government set forth and which is included in the 24 elders of Revelation is that which the apostles proclaimed and which was rejected by national Israel. And yet, it is the same gospel preached to both Jews and Gentiles by them. As one can see in this, there is one, and there is only one gospel. It is preached to Jew and Gentile alike, but there is also another thing that God is doing. That is the keeping of restoration of and exaltation of the nation of Israel according to the promises made to the patriarchs. If you don't understand that, go back and watch the sermon from Leviticus 26, the last one from that chapter. It's about verses 42 through 45. This is not a different gospel, but a different outworking that serves an entirely different purpose in redemptive history. The salvation of Israel, the nation will occur in exactly the same way as the individual is saved today. All seen right here in Joshua 4. Did everybody go through the Jordan? Did they all go through the baptism of Christ? That's what's being pictured. Jew and Gentile, all the same thing, folks. The reason for raising up these stones in the midst of the Jordan, verse 9, is obvious. When the waters returned, the people who are symbolized by these stones, both Jew and Gentile, would be in Christ. Think of the descender and the stones bathing them. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Those stones were raised up in the exact spot that the priests and ark were standing. The word was tahat, under, meaning in place of. When somebody replaces his father, he comes under. He replaces him, right? They signify the government of Christ over the church, comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. How do I know that's true? Because we have a Jew in the church today, folks. All have come to him during this dispensation, and that is who this is speaking of. The reason why I'm so angry about this is because of the heresy called hyper-dispensationalism, where it says that there's two Gospels, one to the Jews and one to the Gentiles. I'm sorry, you have to leave this church, buddy. I'm in the back, I hear. I know you do, and I'm making sure you can hear. It's maddening how people get things in their head and they just go off on these crazy tangents I talked about at the beginning of this sermon. This is in place of the law of Moses. Think of it. Here's the priest standing there. They've got the Arun Edut, the Ark of the Covenant, right? Or Ark of the Congregation, the Arun, uh, what is it? Um, uh, you've got the Ark of the Testimony. You've got the Ark of uh, Ha'edut. You've got the uh, Arun Yehovah. You've got three or four different names, right? All of them are pointing to Christ in a different way, a different meaning, a different role. And they're standing there. But what does it picture? The death of Christ, the blood. Remember, it's being put on the mercy seat. It's, it's Christ doing his work and dying in fulfillment of it. Where are these stones being placed? Under that. It is replacing what is above it. Does everybody see the symbolism? The new covenant is now replacing the old, okay? This is in place of the law of Moses, signified by the Ark of the Covenant. Christ's priestly role established the new covenant and set aside or replaced the old. Here's what it says in Hebrews 7. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. 
for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. It's all seen right here in the Joshua sermons. The words, and they are there to this day of verse 9, clearly indicate the permanence of what took place. As for where this was, I gave several options in the last sermon. I would argue that it was on the other side of the Jordan, exactly where the priests first placed their feet, not in the middle of the river. The main reason is that they were clearly visible to the people after the Jordan once again filled. But more, the text says nothing of the priests moving once their feet were planted. Therefore, it seems likely that they were set up on the other shore where the banks overflowed, but not enough to cover them. Next, verse 10 said that the priests with the ark stood there until all was tamam, or finished. The waters were finished. That was Christ's death. The nation finished crossing. That's the salvation of national Israel. And everything was finished according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. That was verse 10. The law of Moses, meaning the command and the charge for Christ Jesus in his earthly life, was finished. The new covenant was introduced, and only after all of this do the waters then return. This is why Hebrews 8.13 says the following. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and what is growing old is ready to vanish away. Christ's work is complete. The new covenant is introduced, but national Israel has not yet accepted it. Until they do, the old is only ready to vanish away. Coming soon to a tribulation period and an entry into the millennium near you. Verse 11 noted the alacrity with which Israel crossed through. Once they realize who Jesus is, there will be a national rush to accept him, and thus all Israel will be saved. It is reflective of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. For he says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Only after the nation crosses through does the Aron Yehovah, the Ark of Yehovah, Jesus the God-man, then cross through in type this reveals that only in the acceptance of Jesus as their Messiah will he finally appear before them. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They will be saved, and then he will appear to them. They will have to come in by faith, not by sight. The symbolism of reintroducing Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh is more difficult to pin down. But I would guess that these are typical of those of Israel, both who remain outside of the promise, meaning those who are not in the land when Jesus returns, and of those who are born in the land after Israel's acceptance of their Messiah. Not all from these tribes cross through, and thus they reflect those who must later choose to believe or not. And there are those who will not believe. Even in the millennium are several verses which reveal this, such as Isaiah 65, verse 20. With the crossing through recorded as completed in verse 14, 
it said of Joshua that they feared him as they had feared Moses. Understanding that Joshua is typical of Christ, we noted the four causes previously mentioned to reflect this. Here is that again. Once again, as I did in the chapter three sermons, I'm going to take Joshua and replace it with Jesus. That's all I'm going to do. The priests bearing the ark are the material cause. It's Christ's priestly sacrificial role in his person. Their entry into the Jordan, his cross is what makes the thing like wood in a table to be. The formal cause, the design is the parting of the Jordan, his death. The efficient cause, what brings it about, is the Lord's presence working on behalf of Jesus. And the final cause, the purpose, is the exaltation of Jesus in the eyes of the people. With that complete through verse 14 last week, the account then went back in time, starting in our verses today, where the priests and the ark were still in the Jordan. The Lord told Joshua to command the priests who bore the Aron Ha'edut, the ark, the testimony, the law of Moses to come up from the Jordan. It is the command for Christ's resurrection. He has been found worthy under the law according to Leviticus 18 verse 5, a verse every one of you should have memorized by now. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man, in the Hebrew it says the man, does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. The people have realized that Christ is the fulfillment of the law, and they have entered into him, crossing through him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Joshua is typical of Christ, the leader of his people. The priests are typical of Christ in his mediatorial role. The ark borne by the priests is typical of Christ, the fulfillment of the law, and the one who then died in fulfillment of it. The Jordan, the descender, pictures Christ who descended from heaven to earth, and the waters picture the life within him. As soon as the note about the Ark of the Testimony was said, it immediately returned to Aaron Berit Yehovah, the Ark of the Covenant of Yehovah. Christ is the embodiment and fulfillment of the old, and he is the initiator of the new. The use of the forceful word nathak, tore up, concerning the feet of the priests gives us a marvelous picture of Christ's work. He was there, cut off and without life, symbolized by the priests with the ark standing there. His sacrificial death brought about the sudden and abrupt ending of the law. With the sacrificial work complete, the veil was torn and the law was ended. Israel has accepted this, and they are now included in what God has done. Here's what it says in Psalm 107. Those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death. Think of Israel right now. They're sitting in darkness in the shadow of death, bound in afflictions and irons because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down and there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke Nathak, their chains in pieces. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he has broken the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron in two. With this complete, it says that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place. That was verse 18. Israel has been saved through the work of Christ. The promises to the nation have been fulfilled in their acceptance of Jesus and the Jordan, the descender, Jesus Christ, overflowed all his banks as before. 
Remember that as long as the priests with the ark stood there, it was as if the waters actually never stopped, except in Jesus. In other words, the typology is showing us that these people are being baptized into the death of Jesus, just as they once were baptized into Moses. The words of Paul clearly show us this. From 1 Corinthians 10, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. Here it is, Moses. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual rock. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. This is exactly what has been since Numbers chapter 14. Exactly. The law could not save them except as it is fulfilled by Christ. And so we go to Romans 6. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, no longer Moses, into Christ, Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Everything that we're reading about is seen in these obscure passages from Joshua. It is incredible. With this noted, it next gave the dating of when the events took place. It was exactly to the day 40 years after the Passover lamb was selected. You can see 1 Peter 1.19 to understand the significance of that. It was on the first Passover that that date, and then 40 years later, this happened. On this day, the people ascended from the Jordan, meaning they were spiritually raised in Christ. Go read Ephesians 2, 6 to understand that. Bollinger notes that 40 is the number of probation, trial, and chastisement of a covenant people. Sounds like Israel, doesn't it? It is the product of five and eight and points to the action of grace, five, God keeping Israel all of these years, leading to and ending in eight, revival and renewal. Sounds like Israel coming soon to a, a great day near you. From the presentation of Jesus as Israel's true Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he's called the Passover lamb, until their acceptance of him, they have gone through the exact process and care by the Lord for them as is defined by E.W. Bollinger. But more, it was also 14,000 days to the day from their departure from Sinai, signifying life under the law. Bollinger's definition of 14 perfectly describes their state. I'll read it again. Being a multiple of seven partakes of its significance and being double, that number implies a double measure of spiritual perfection. The number two with which it is combined Two times seven may, however, bring its own significance into its meaning, as in Matthew 1, where the genealogy of Jesus Christ is divided up and given in sets of 14, two times seven, generations, two being the number associated with the incarnation. In accepting Christ Jesus in his incarnation, meaning he is the God-man and Israel says, I agree to that, they will have a double measure of spiritual perfection. They will be both individually and nationally saved in Christ. From there, it noted that the people camped in Gilgal, meaning rolling away or liberty, on the east border of Jericho. That's the place of fragrance, paradise restored. We've seen that every time we've seen Jericho, it's been the place of fragrance. It's picturing paradise restored. Where were the cherubim placed in the garden? East. At the east of the garden, Genesis 324, 
because of the work of Christ, the people of Israel will come to that spot of liberty at the door of paradise that has been anticipated since the very fall of man. There in Gilgal, Joshua set up 12 stones just as he did in the Jordan. Christ is the one to set up the government. This one is for national Israel during the millennium, and which is incorporated with the government of the church to form the heavenly government described by E.W. Bullinger. Here's what he says. 24 being a multiple of 12 expresses in a higher form the same signification. It is the number associated with the heavenly government and worship of which the earthly form in Israel was only a copy. The final verses of the chapter spoke of the reason for the setting up of the stones. They point to Christ in as many roles seen in this passage. They are a memorial of what he would do and now of what he has done. And all of it was said to be so that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty. As our text verse noted, Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Those deeds included the crossing of the Red Sea and the destruction of Egypt. With the events of Joshua 3 and 4, the Lord has exalted his new leader, Joshua. That's verse 3-7. Joshua is typical of Christ, and it is Christ Jesus whom God has exalted to the highest degree because he is the Lord God Almighty. The 12 stones times two piles were to be a witness to Israel concerning the great acts of the Lord. The first ones collected were explicitly stated to be taken, one for each tribe of the nation of Israel. The second ones were actually raised up first, first by Joshua, though, weren't they? Those were then explicitly stated by John the Baptist to reflect something entirely different and a completely different outworking of the Lord. The one chosen first was set up last, but they were, in fact, set up God will remember his covenant with Israel and they will receive the promises made to them in scripture. Does everybody see the typology? Okay. And yet the process of salvation was identical for both, even if they occur in a separate way. Those of the church individually and collectively and those of national Israel individually and collectively all have to come through the same single gospel, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This applies to each member of the church and each member of Israel. And this applies in the same manner collectively to the church at the rapture and to the nation of Israel at the second coming. Joshua 3 and 4, when properly analyzed, clear up a lot, and I mean a lot, a lot of bad theology through simple typology. If you're stuck in replacement theology, the typology clears that up. If you're stuck in a return to the law, such as in Hebrew roots movement, it clears that up too. If you're deceived by hyper-dispensationalism, it clears that up too. I could go on with a lot of points of really bad doctrine or even heresy concerning what this passage clears up, but I will instead implore you to keep reviewing our sermons and our weekly Bible studies. We do our best to cover all such things from time to time. Joshua 3 and 4 just puts them all in a simple, easy-to-swallow power pack. What a wonderful thing God has done in these precious pages, and it's all centered on one thing, the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
I would ask you to consider the simple gospel today and yield your life to him. It is beyond comprehension that these patterns simply occurred by chance. The details are too perfect. The pictures are too exacting. Call on Jesus and be a part of what he is doing in human history to redeem the sons of man. Yes, I would ask you to please call on him today. Jesus Christ is the only hope for condemned man. And when I say condemned man, I mean man that is born of a woman and a man. That is it. That is our default position. Condemned belonging to the devil. From the moment you're conceived, that is your default position. If you don't believe me, go read John 3.18. Everybody knows John 3.16, such good news. Well, you got to know about the bad news, John 3.18. Okay? That's where we are. And Jesus Christ came to take care of that for us. And man, isn't it pictured in these two Joshua chapters, three and four? And you're going to see more of it in five and six and seven and eight. Okay? What's going on? He's talking about different aspects of exactly the same occurrence. When we're saved, we're not just, you know, saved. We're also circumcised. We're also baptized. We're also justified. And all these, all coming to a sermon near you if you hold on, okay? Or if the Lord doesn't come for us. Please call on Jesus Christ today. Please call on him. Accept that he has done this for you. He gave up his perfect life in exchange for your sins. And if you'll just hold on to that, if you'll just hold it in your heart, and ask him to forgive you for your sins. He will. That's all you can give him, folks. You can't give him anything by helping an old lady across the street. You can't give him anything by giving your money to a missionary over in Kenya. No, you're not. I'm sorry. All you can give him is your faith. He already owns everything. All right? You give him your faith, and then all those other things you do will be counted to you for rewards or losses. All of them. Okay? But give yourself to the Lord first. He loves you enough to do this for you and to just simply offer it as grace. Okay. And seeing as how we're talking about grace, I talked about it, I think this last Bible study, maybe it was a week and a half ago, just so you know that merited grace is not grace. Okay. In other words, when you're saved, you're saved. If you have to do something to keep being saved, it was never grace to begin with. Ever. Ever. You cannot lose your salvation. And people that don't understand that simple premise do not understand the simple word grace. Okay? Learn what grace means and then stop saying how great you are before God. Say how great Jesus is to one, have saved you in the first place, and two, to just keep on saving you. I've got a closing verse here for you. It's from uh, Philippians 2. Great words. Think of what we just went through. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This was the purpose of Joshua being the leader, to bring exaltation to him. And this is what God is doing in Christ, is to bring exaltation to God through Christ. Okay? Now, not only have you seen, I'm referring back to what John Huller said about chapter 4 of Joshua, not only have you seen that there are types and pictures in this sermon, but they can't be fully understood without going back actually to Joshua chapter 1. But those cannot be fully understood unless you go all the way back to Numbers chapter 14. And I mean watch every single sermon since then, because they're all pointing to that. But guess what? Numbers Chapter 14 cannot be fully appreciated without understanding what happened in the book of Leviticus. And that can't be understood without what happened in the book of Exodus. 
And that cannot be understood without the foundation of Genesis 1-1. So if you have only started today in this sermon, you've missed everything leading up to what you've seen today. Say, oh, great typology. You got to go back to Genesis 1-1 and just watch all of the sermons. I know there's only a thousand or so, so it'll take you no time to get through. But that, it is all typology. From Genesis 1-1 all the way through, it is all typology God is dealing with. Watch those sermons. Okay, I've got a question for you before we have our poem. This is a $50 where shopping is a pleasure. $50 gift certificate, okay? In Zechariah 4, this somebody's going to get this. If you don't, it's a hard one. I'm going to grant you that. If nobody gets it, I'm not going to blame you. I'm not going to belittle you. Well, let me tell you, this is not going to be easy, but I think somebody might get this. In Zechariah 4, who is giving credit for having both laid the foundation of the house of the Lord and is told he will also finish it? Who? Nehemiah. Not Nehemiah. That's No, that's not um, uh, uh, what uh, uh, Zechariah. That's not, no, Nehemiah is a whole different book. But he's mentioned elsewhere as well. Okay, but it's not Nehemiah. Who is told that he will both lay the foundation of the house of the Lord and is told he will also finish it. You will put the capstone on it to the shouts of... Yay! Hey! Woo! Zerubbabel. What does Zerubbabel mean? Seed of Babylon. Zerah is seed. Babylon, he's the seed of Babylon. Now I want to read you a couple verses so that you understand this, okay? Here we go. We're going to go first. I'm going to take you to Jeremiah 22. This really gets people messed up. Okay, Jeremiah 22, verse 24 says this. This is talking about the same individual. Okay, first it, in this one it's not, but the next one it will. As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off, and I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life and into the hand of those whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. The royal line was cut off, seemingly ending the royal dynasty of David, which was promised to go on forever. How can that be? Because the Lord promised that it would go on forever and ever. Zerubbabel is the answer. I'm going to take you to the teeny-weeny, itsy-bitsy little book called Haggai. Okay, and I've got to find it. It's going to take me forever to find this because it's so small. But uh, give me one second. It's right here. It's going to be right before Zechariah. There it is, Haggai. Okay, and then we're going to take you to 2 verse 23. Here's the answer to that in case anybody ever asks you that question. Haggai 2 verse 23. I'll start up at 20. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, seed of Babylon, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down. Everyone by the sword of his brother. Verse 23, in that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. The ring is reinserted in Zerubbabel after the punishment of Israel, and guess which name both genealogies in Matthew and Luke coincide in? Zerubbabel. Your Bible is a perfect word. Don't let people try to cast doubts on your faith when they show you stupid things and say, well, how can you reconcile this? It's right there if you just read the book, okay? Isn't it wonderful? I love the word. Oh, it's great. Next week is Joshua 5, 
verses 1 through 9. Off it will be stripped. Yes, it shall be done. The reproach of Egypt. Part 1. That'll be her ninth Joshua sermon. Good job, Jay. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who has defeated the enemy and who now offers his people rest. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? I got a poem and it will be done. This is an itty bitty little poem, only a couple verses. It's called 12 Stones Part 2. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, these words to him he was relaying. Command the priests who bear the Ark of the Testimony to come up from the Jordan. So I say, Joshua therefore commanded the priests saying, come up from the Jordan. He did relay. And it came to pass when the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord had come from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priest's feet touched the dry land according to the word that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place once more and overflowed all its banks as before. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, as we now know, and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones, which they out of the Jordan took, Joshua set up in Gilgal, as is now recorded in the Joshua book. Then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, yes, you shall be conveying. Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over as he promised. So the Lord did do. As the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. Here comes a rhyme so clever that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. All right. I will say this now. I, maybe Sergio will repeat it. I don't know. But um, uh, if you are at home and you are unsure if you can take the communion with us, please do. You're a part of this church. If you're watching these sermons and you're enjoying the fellowship, please have your bread and your wine set aside and have it when we take it. There are people all over the world that you will be fellowshipping with that are doing exactly the same thing. We got people in Australia, South Africa. We got people in Ireland and Germany. And I don't mean to exclude anybody. We just got people that are watching that love the word of the Lord and they partake with us. So please do that. And don't, don't feel it's something you have to ask for permission of. You're a member of this church if you love the word of God and you are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I got to push this button like I didn't last week. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to take this wonderful Lord's Supper. We pray for Sergio, whose back is hurting so badly today. We ask that you just help him through that. And uh, we thank you that he's willing to come up here and do this despite his affliction. So, Lord, please bless him. And we ask that you bless each person that partakes with us and as they reflect on their sins in your glorious presence. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Charlie, before you go, I wanted to ask you something. Yes. Since you mentioned people can participate with us, uh, we always read this every, every time. And I ask you once in a while, what does it mean in an unworthy manner? 
an unworthy manner. Yeah. I'm going to wait till that goes off because it's going to distract me. I don't oh. know who it is, so I'm not. I'm not complaining, but it's me? probably you. No, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> okay, unworthy manner. A lot of people are afraid to take the Lord's Supper because they say I'm unworthy. The fact is that every person here and every person that has ever existed is unworthy. That's not what it's saying. It's saying taking this in an unworthy manner. We are to acknowledge our sins before the Lord. Lord, I was saved by you years ago. I, ex- I acknowledged my sins and you forgave me. And I'm saved by the blood that you shed. But I've been continuing to sin. I sin in my mind. I sin in my thoughts. I sin in my deeds and my actions and my inactions towards other people and towards my wife or my son or whatever. I'm unworthy of this. And that is what makes you worthy because you have now come into Christ in his fullness and you've made yourself available to his cleansing to take this. Otherwise, he says that you're doing it in an unworthy manner and you will be judged. I know I, I misquoted that, but that's the purpose. It's not to keep you from taking it because these churches that do that, they say this person is in sin and he's not allowed to take this. That's not their choice. That is the choice of the individual who is coming before the Lord and saying, I understand my unworthiness and I know that I'm doing wrong and now I want to be cleansed of that. That is the purpose. And the Lord has already forgiven you, but he is now accepting you for this fellowship offering pictured in the old covenant, but which is now realized in Christ in the new covenant. Is that what you needed? Yeah, okay, yeah, good. good. Yeah. Uh, I remember the first we did on the church on the beach. And back at the time, I wasn't found the Lord, but I was already saved. I knew that. Uh, but I was afraid to take it. I thought, oh, I'm a sinner. I can't take it. And yet I needed Christ so much. And I was just afraid of those words. So it's uh, thank you for elaborating.